Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Timothy Williams, uh, assistant professor of history in the Clark Honors College at the University of Oregon. His interests include intellectual and cultural history, focusing particularly on the United States and the American South during the 19th century. Williams' first book, Intellectual Manhood, University, Self, and Society in the Antebellum South, was published in 2015. His co-edited volume, Prison Pens, Gender, Memory, and Imprisonment in the Writings of Molly Scalay and Wash Nelson, 1863 to 1866, was published in 2018. Williams will be an Oregon Humanities Center Faculty Research Fellow during the 2021 academic year, working on his current book project, Civil War Prisons and the Problem of Confederate Memory. Thanks, Tim, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in intellectual history of the antebellum and Civil War periods. Sure. Um, I should say that uh, I first became interested in the, the study of regionalism in general uh, by virtue of my own uh, background growing up. I was actually born in Michigan uh, and lived there for nine years. My mom's side of the family is from the north, my dad's side of the family from Virginia. Mm. And uh, when we were nine, I moved to Virginia. Mm. And I always had this consciousness of, of regional otherness from either my dad's mother, my grandmother, who spoke about my mom's northern relatives and uh, and vice versa. And so I, I, I did always sort of grow up with this sense of, uh, of region in a way that is unique, I think, um, just having moved uh, from between regions. Um, in terms of uh, my scholarly background, um, this uh, my interest emerged as I uh, wrote an honors thesis, actually as an undergraduate at Wake Forest University. I took a very small seminar on United States social history, how people lived uh, before the Civil War, and we had to do a research project, and we had to use primary sources. And it was pretty simple and uh, staple within the um, within education. Uh, and we and so I decided to do a project about Wake Forest students before the Civil War. What was their life like? Uh, what what you know what did they do? And I realized that they had quite uh, a robust outside of the classroom extracurricular intellectual life in literary and debating societies. Hmm. Uh, and so I carried that uh, that topic with me into graduate school at Chapel Hill and uh, really took off with it there. Hmm. Fascinating. So let's talk about uh, your monograph, mm -hmm. uh, Intellectual Manhood, University, Self and Society in the Antebellum South. So tell us well, why don't you just gloss that title? Give us a sense of what the book is yeah. about. So in short, uh, the book is about both maturation and education, uh, how the two work together at a particular time, the antebellum period, in a particular place, the South. Um, and what I do in this book that's different from other histories of education and also other histories of the American South is I pay very careful attention to what the young men thought what they wrote, what they read, what they imagined, what they debated. Uh, so this is very much a look at higher education from a student-centered perspective rather than a perspective of uh, college presidents or professors talking about their students. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that those are very different perspectives, even thinking about how we, <laughs> how we engage today. 
So tell us, I mean, so how did you, what did you look at? What are the uh, materials that you were looking at to get access to what the students felt and thought? Yeah, so at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, I was fortunate to have access to the Southern Historical Collection, which is the premier repository for uh, archival materials related to the American South. And uh, the University of North Carolina in particular has its university archives there. And uh, that university, the first public university to open its uh, doors to students, uh, has by far the richest collection, the richest trove of, of manuscript materials related to students. So I looked at their letters, I looked at their diaries, but I also looked at their library borrowing records. Hmm. I looked at all of the speeches that I had access to, um, hundreds of speeches that they gave um, before audiences of their peers in literary and debating clubs uh, during the antebellum period, uh, poetry that they wrote, uh, short stories that they wrote. So it was, um, it was quite a, a, a vast supply of and variety of, of material from student voices. So I know that there are certain um, stereotypical or mythological understandings of what uh, men in the South were, what, yeah. what they were like, what Southern masculinity was like before yeah. the Civil War. But you uncover a different picture. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, much of the the literature um, on Southern masculinity is asked what's Southern about it, right? And people have been asking that question since the, the early Republic. Jefferson characterized famously the South as, and Southerners as distinctive with fiery spirits. And uh, after the Civil War, Henry Adams at Harvard said that his Southern classmates had uh, all temperament and no mind. And these stereotypes stuck. And for, uh, uh, for reasons related to popular culture following the Civil War, and we can talk about that. Um, but I wanted to know uh, a little bit more about um, sort of how, how Southern masculinity existed among people who didn't walk around saying, I am a Southern man. This is my Southern manhood. Mm -hmm. I have Southern honor. You know, uh, in other words, I wanted to sort of break through some of the uh, paradigms that existed within the scholarship to look at the lived experiences of these men. And what um, did you discover? And so I discovered that in many ways they were like every other young American man in the 19th century. They thought first of themselves as Americans, second of themselves as uh, citizens of the state in which they lived, and then in terms of region. Uh, and this matters, I think, because it, it shows that the, the, the development of sectionalism happened gradually over several decades. Mm -hmm. And it reminds us that we've spent a lot of time, at least historians, looking from the Civil War backward mm -hmm. and saying, okay, how do we explain that? How do we look for every bit of, of, of regional difference uh, prior to the Civil War so that the Civil War itself makes sense? And that's productive for certain topics, but for something as personal, something as human as gender, I think that we need to, um, we need to look forward uh, from, from the lifetime of those individuals uh, as they saw it. Hmm. Fascinating. So who, who were these students? Who could go to uh, college? Who, who went to UNC? Um, privileged white Southerners. Uh, a large portion of them were from slaveholding families, and many of which were from very large slaveholding families. And the literature documents that pretty well. Uh, however, there were also um, a, a chunk of, of students who came from an emerging uh, Southern bourgeoisie, sons of merchants, sons of school teachers, 
um, sons of lawyers uh, who uh, did have different experiences uh, in the South, different experiences with slaveholding. Um, and North Carolina, in many ways, uh, which is the, the sort of epicenter of my study, uh, has a vast uh, sort of array of different um, demographic experiences. And, the, and one of the things that happens when they're in college is that they have a kind of shared set of ideals despite their difference, differing back, right. backgrounds, which are about embourgeoisification, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Say a little bit about that yeah. part of the story. I think that's where the title of the book comes into play, mm -hmm. uh, this ideal of intellectual manhood. And intellectual manhood is, is a 19th century way of really talking about intellectual maturity. And for them, that meant the, the ability to uh, think independently, uh, to speak um, properly, you know, to be the great orator, be the great public figure, um, and to, uh, to demonstrate that they are ready to lead, that they have an education that has empowered them uh, for civic life. So um, you finish your work on the monograph, mm -hmm. and then you... Um, get involved with this second project, um, Prison Pens. So tell us how you came to that project. Yeah. Uh, I really wanted to do a project on the Civil War. Uh, I, was, I thought about it a lot while I was writing the first book, and I uh, particularly wanted to address uh, what I thought was a gap in the liter literature, which is uh, what sort of thinking, reading, writing, imagining these sort of tropes that I talked about uh, in my first book happened during the Civil War, mm -hmm. particularly with regard to men. It's, it's quite obvious that in a war that uh, saw hundreds of thousands of white men take up arms, uh, the focus has been on the military side. But I wanted to see even still uh, what sort of intellectualizing, what sort of thinking about the war itself uh, was going on. And so I thought, well, you know, I've got to find a community. You know, I've got to find a, a close, you know, uh, coherent set of sources. And I had a friend, well, actually, um, my co-editor, Evan Kutzler, was writing his um, really groundbreaking book on Civil War prisons. And uh, I I thought, wow, that is a great place to start. These guys are sitting there with nothing to do, right? And they're writing about how they had nothing to do. So maybe we could get into their minds a little bit. So you you came up upon the these uh, letters of Molly Scalay and Wash Nelson. Mm -hmm. So who were they, first of all? Yeah. So um, Wash and Molly, uh, they were they were cousins. They were second cousins. Uh, they were from Virginia. They were um, uh, in the last generation of Virginians to come of age before the start of the Civil War. So that put Wash at about 2021 um, at the start of the, the Civil War. And uh, Molly was around his age as well. Um, and uh, they, uh, they ended up, and we, we don't quite have the record of their relationship, actually, mm -hmm. prior to the war, uh, but they ended up uh, courting uh, by 1863, by the time that Wash Nelson was captured by Union uh, a Union regiment and sent to prison. And uh, what follows from that is uh, a wonderful two-way correspondence between these second cousin lovers from Virginia hmm. uh, about their, their burgeoning uh, affection for one another. So tell us what, what's in the, what, give us a sense of what's in the letters between yeah. them, what do you learn? 
They write a lot about um, everyday life for Molly. It's what is she doing on the home front? What are what are uh, familiar friends and family doing? What's the news at home? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Wash is, is not getting uh, the news all the time. He's getting it sporadically. So a lot of that is, is mundane writing in the letters. Uh, and likewise, he's writing to her about where he is, uh, how he is. He's always saying that he's well, and, I, and that's important. He's reassuring her in these letters that he is, he is healthy and well and surviving. Um, he writes to her about how much he misses her. Uh, she writes to him about how much more he could write to her and that he ought to number his letters because she's getting them out of sequence. Mm. And they, they discuss this. He writes her poetry. Mm. So one day he decides that he needed to uh, express his, his uh, love for her by writing an acrostic mm. uh, with the letters of her name. And he sends that to her. Were the letters subject to censorship, or yeah. yeah, they were. They were censored, and uh, that that explains a great deal about why they are as mundane as they are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. So after the war, once he's released, he then writes a memoir. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that uh, book. Yeah. So the memoir is um, it's a rather short um, uh, manuscript. It was never published. Um, in well, it was it was later published in a Lost Cause magazine, and mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. that's important to think mm -hmm. about uh, later. But uh, it was um, it, it was very much about the his captivity based on what he couldn't say in the letters. So mm -hmm. he wasn't allowed to talk about any maltreatment in the letters, any disease. He wasn't allowed to talk about or ask about military strategy. He wasn't allowed to receive information from the home front about what was going on uh, militarily. And uh, sometimes they found ways around it. Uh, but the, the memoir is allowed, it allows him the space to say, actually, I was starving. Actually, I was treated poorly after my initial captivity. Um, actually, my friends and I uh, got to a point where we had to skin a cat and eat it. Um, those things wouldn't have gone through the censor. Hmm, fascinating. So you've used the phrase lost cause. Yeah. You said there was, was published in a lost cause magazine. So what was this lost cause ideology or what is this lost cause yeah. ideology? As one of my mentors likes to say, and it's just a great phrase, uh, it was the Southern spin on the war. Mm -hmm. uh, the South uh, had to, in some way, justify its cause and say that it was a moral one, that they were fighting for a real preservation of the real America, the real American democracy, that, that slavery was a, a benevolent institution. We know, of course, it was not. Um, and uh, this was this became a, a, a pretty ubiquitous uh, explanation for Southerners to say, okay, well, uh, we may have lost the war, but we we were morally right. So you say um, that recent historians generally agree that Southerners may have lost the war, mm -hmm. but in certain ways they won the war for Civil War memory. Mm -hmm. Say why? Yeah, um, following the American Civil War. Uh, Southerners wrote and wrote and wrote their histories 
regimental histories, family histories, histories of captivity. And uh, these, these over, over the course of decades, these writings entered the mainstream. They were published by northern publishers. They, were, uh, they circulated nationally. And they told, a, they told a story of the antebellum South and of the Civil War completely devoid of the, the, the sort of trauma of slavery, the degradation of slavery uh, that uh, appealed, right? And so I think we, we see this most uh, clearly in, in the wide, uh, wide appeal of Gone with the Wind, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Margaret Mitchell yep. in, in the 20th century is still using these tropes. Before that, you know, Birth of the Nation, yep. uh, the most well-known and insidious uh, lost cause narrative, was the first film to be shown in the White House. Mm -hmm. And um, these, these sort of cultural exchanges between the regions and in many ways a cultural acceptance in the north of the southern narrative, uh, which in many ways was about reconciliation, those stuck. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Um, so to say a little bit more um, about why these prison archives, like the ones where you found mm -hmm. uh, Wash's correspondence, why have they been overlooked? I think people have been uh, have approached Civil War prisons from a political and military perspective, and as a result, these are you know these are not necessarily the most sort of dependable uh, uh, narratives. But for those of us who are interested in the study of narrative more broadly, those of us who are interested in culture and ideas, uh, find a lot of opportunity in those. Uh, and I think that. Um, if we read through the texts and we read them as genre, mm -hmm. then I think we can uncover um, a, a quite a bit about the lived experience of war that may not interest people who study politics and military strategy, but they do those of us who study society and culture. Hmm. So next year, you're gonna be a research fellow at the Oregon Humanities Center, as I mentioned at the top mm -hmm. of the interview. Um, and this, the project that you're working on is related to this question. So tell yeah. us about that project. Absolutely, it, it directly uh, evolved from prison pens. And uh, the project traces, uh, I trace, the uh, sort of history of Civil War prisoners and their ideas and their publications from their prison cells through war through Reconstruction and into the 20th century and looking at how they transform as a genre that began scratched on paper with pencil and ink, right, in prison uh, and, um, and, and continued to circulate. Um, so Confederate history, as you've said, um, as you've emphasized, we know that Confederate history, and we've heard about this recently, has been memorialized in statues yeah. and symbols. But you've emphasized the narrative genre literature. Yeah. So say a little bit more about the role that literature played yeah. in memorializing yeah. the Confederate experience and the lost cause. Yeah, for every for every statue, there was a speech that accompanied its its you know erection in public and. Um, I think that those can be considered as part of the literature, mm -hmm. those speeches. Mm -hmm. And those speeches also uh, have themes that are echoed in popular culture magazines, uh, in novels, in the American canon. Um, you know, we, I mentioned earlier Birth of a Nation uh, based on a novel written by uh, Thomas Dixon. And uh, 
likewise Gone with the Wind, uh, but there are also others. Uh, Wash Nelson was um, dis, uh, uh, related to Thomas Page Nelson, who mm. wrote some of the uh, most vitriolic uh, um, post-war lost cause literature. So this is, there is a, 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 an array of, of, of literary works ranging from poetry to song to novels uh, to sort of embellished uh, reminiscence that uh, accompanies all of those statues, that deals with those themes of um, looking at those themes of, of Southern self-righteousness. So why, I always ask this question when I'm talking to uh, people that work in the humanities or the humanistic social sciences, why is what you're doing important? Yeah. Why does studying the intellectual and cultural history of the antebellum and civil war and postbellum period, yeah. why is that something that needs to happen? Why is yeah. that a good thing to do? Yeah, you know, it's, that's an excellent question. It is, we live in a time in which uh, white nationalist movements are uh, more robust than I remember ever in my lifetime and um, are getting so much attention, right, and creating so much violence. And these groups are appropriating narratives about the white past in the South, right? They're appropriating narratives about racial violence, right? And they're appropriating symbols. So you may see, as I did when I first moved to Oregon, a Confederate flag, you know, on a car going right along I-5. And I was so surprised. And those people may not have any interest in the Confederacy whatsoever, but they do subscribe to the ideology that accompanied the Confederacy. And I think that uh, we have to know the historical origins in order to understand how they're being used today and how we as educated members of society ought to combat that. Hmm. Yeah, so true. So. Uh, in addition to being a scholar, a mm -hmm. historian, you are also a teacher. Mm -hmm. So you described to me briefly before we began the interview a course that you're currently teaching. So tell us about that course. Yeah, I'm teaching a really um, interesting new course on the Civil War era. It's called The House Divided, the United States in the 1860s. But what makes it interesting is that it is focused entirely on the distillation of ideas about the Civil War for public consumption. Hmm. So the um, Robert D. Clark Honors College, where I where I work, is uh, has received a grant from the Calderwood Foundation um, to teach these small um, eleven to twelve person classes uh, how to write about complicated ideas for, say, audiences reading op eds or hmm. book reviews for the Washington Post and things like that. Hmm. So we're reading a lot of scholarship, but we're really focusing on how we write about it for general readership. So tell me something. Tell me, like, what are the assignments that the students have to do? Yeah. Um, so. Uh, they, uh, for example, have to, uh, to write uh, film reviews. So each student will write a, a review about a different film. Uh, and they have to then write that review for, say, the Washington Post or for the New York Times. And they have all of the uh, guidelines for that. And it really, really gets at the heart of what we try to do in education more broadly is to get students to write plainly yet directly and smartly. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it, it's a fun class. Each student actually um, takes turns being an author and an editor. 
Huh, interesting, yeah. interesting. What are the materials that they're reading in there? Um, they're reading uh, a variety of, uh, they're reading some scholarly articles. They're reading scholarly monographs. So two scholarly articles, two scholarly monographs, and uh, the two films. And what are the films? The films are uh, Free State of Jones, uh, which is based on a historical monograph about sort of the inner civil war within the South, and uh, Spielberg's Lincoln. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Fascinating. Um, one of the things that I discovered when, I, when we were doing the research for the interview is you have a very interesting um, statement on your website about your pedagogical approach. Mm. So tell us about that. Yeah, I'm fortunate to teach in the Honors College with small classes all the time. And so that, uh, that really gives me the, the liberty to let students lead the class. And so I, um, I often ask students to call on one another. I talk about how our classes uh, comprise uh, co-discussants. Uh, so that we can practice looking at each other face to face, responding and, and, and thinking thoughtfully about what we're saying about the common text. And they all, you know, they, they do the reading, and I'm really lucky about that. So <laughs> I'm lucky to have that in my the life. College, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned on the website that this um, talking to each other, mm -hmm. asking questions, of each, this can be stressful, at least at the beginning for them. Yeah. How do you get them over that? It's a matter of building trust, uh, trust that uh, they are not going to uh, be impolite or rude. So we often talk about, uh, you know, community guidelines for the classroom. Um, you know, sometimes students just aren't very happy with discussion, you yeah. know. And what, I, what I've learned to do is to offer students who may be quiet or may come to a, dis, you know, a discussion point later to email me uh, and talk to me you know, by email about what they're thinking about class. And I found that that actually, over the course of a term, uh, does a nice job creating that comfort that actually allows for the quietest student at the end of the term to actually be a pretty good discussant. Hmm. So um, we've just got a couple of minutes left. Mm -hmm. I think this will be my last question. Um, as part of the uh, Prison Pens book, mm -hmm. you've created a companion website, yeah. and it's very much aimed at uh, for undergraduates. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the, uh, the website uh, sort of helps students to visualize uh, the book. Uh, it contains links to the original manuscripts, uh, which are all digitized on the Virginia Tech Library website, which is where they, they, they live in real life, too. Uh, there's an interactive map. There are uh, sample lesson plans that uh, Evan Kutzler and I wrote together. Uh, there's a great uh, interactive timeline that helps students navigate through uh, the book. Wash Nelson was in prison for 20 months, but he was in prison at six different prisons over that time. So sometimes having that visual of the map and the timeline together can be really helpful in understanding, okay, where is he now? Have people been using it? Do you know? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Is this part of your you know, you, do you do you have a kind of di digital humanities component? Do you think to do you think that's a crucial part of what you will be doing in the future? I don't know, to be honest. I, I think that um, digital humanities uh, 
does make the humanities more accessible. Mm -hmm. um, as a scholar, I am unbelievably grateful for the digitization of documents, and I think that that is a wonderful uh, use of digital technology to make things useful and, and, and accessible to, to uh, scholars. Um, in the classroom, I haven't quite figured out how I how I work with that. I, I really still uh, hew to the to the the classic seminar style. Mm -hmm. I think students they, they live in a world of screens. We all live in a world of screens, and actually, I think the most counter you know cultural thing we can do in a classroom now is actually to sit and talk. Okay. Well, on that note, which I'm in agreement with, I want to thank <laughs> you, Tim, for talking with us today. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you. I've been speaking with Timothy, Timothy Williams, Assistant Professor of History in the Clark Honors College at the University of Oregon. Williams' first book, Intellectual Manhood, University, Self, and Society in the Antebellum South, was published in 19, 2015. His co-edited volume, Prison Pens, Gender, Memory, and Imprisonment in the Writings of Molly Scalay and Wash Nelson, was published in 2018. Williams will be an Oregon Humanities Center Faculty Research Fellow during the 2021 academic year, working on his current book project, Civil War Prisons and the Problem of Confederate Memory. Thanks so much for watching.